Turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to continue on in this fascinating little book together. If you missed, uh, if you, if you missed last week, you weren't here with us. We have this fellow named Nehemiah, who is in Persia, in Susa, there at the citadel. He receives word from his brother, who seems to come with some friends. He asks how things are going. He says, well, things aren't going particularly well. There's trouble and shame, and the wall lies in, in ruin, which is the occasion for the shame. And so Nehemiah pleads for mercy for his people. He's in angst. But he also pleads mercy for himself as he goes before this man. You know, who is this man? And then Nehemiah chapter 1 ends, and we zoom out. We find out Nehemiah is not just some isolated, lamenting Jew over in Persia, that he is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Wow. So Nehemiah ends up going before his king and his friend, called him the Sipin Pal, and um, says that, hey, uh, he notices that Nehemiah is sad, and he says, I want to go back and, and, and rebuild. The, the, the tombs of my fathers are ruined. This amounted to nothing less than overturning a decree that he had already made, a super bold move. So it's, it seemed good to the king to allow him to do that. And while he was kind of on a roll there, he said, well, can I have some materials from the king's forest? And kind of have written authority because he's got to go to the province beyond the river, the province over across the Euphrates River, those folks over there, technically under Persian rule, but sometimes they took the law into their own hands. And so he, he heads out and the adventure begins. He ends up running into Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, who are the two bad guys, kind of like Horus and Jasper. Remember Horus and Jasper from 101 Dalmatians? That's... That is Sanballat and Tobiah, okay, Horus and Jasper. And uh, kind of one is the, the junior colleague of the other, Tobiah, and we know that they're going to be trouble. They're disgusted that someone would even come and seek the welfare of Israel. But hey, when you got the Persian army with you and a military escort and a letter from the king, you got to kind of say, yes, sir, you know what I mean? And let things go. And that's exactly what happens. Step aside, please. And so Nehemiah gets back there, goes on a moonlight tour of Jerusalem and is inspecting What's before him before he announces to anyone what he is there to do? So finally, he circles up the influencers, the nobles, the priests. And he says, listen, here's what the Lord has put in my heart. The hand of God is on me and the king of Persia is behind me. So if there's any time to rebuild, the time is now. And so they agreed and they said, let's rise up and build. And it ends with the... It ends the particular chapter uh, with this word getting back to old Horace and Jasper back there, Sambalat and Tobiah, who are not happy. And they're going to try to intimidate Nehemiah, and we're going to see that again. He responds with prayer, saying that you have no part in Jerusalem. God is with them, and what you're going to do, you're going to watch this happen. No matter how you try to stop this, it's going to happen because God's behind it. And that sets the stage. The stage is then totally set for the rebuilding project to commence. And so that happens in chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to read every single verse uh, of chapter 3, but I want to touch on some highlights and then uh, give a, get an overview, then make a couple of observations about the rebuild here. So it begins with the high priests and the priests rising up there in 
Verse 1, Eliashib the priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. The sheep gate was apparently near the temple and so the priests would have had a more vested interest in that particular gate. But in addition to that, um, it's likely but not certain that is the gate where the sheep would have come through perhaps for the sacrifices in the temple. So again, they had a super vested interest in taking care of that part. And this is the only part of the rebuilding project here that is consecrated. It says that the priests consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. We don't know exactly what that means. There might be a reference to something like that later on in our time together today. Could it be referring back to something like this? But they consecrated it. They set it apart as part of the rebuilding uh, effort. And people continue to build. The rebuilding project continues. You get down to verse 5, and then you find out something that's odd. The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles, those who are more influential among the higher class, they would not stoop to serve their Lord. And then it's a question of whether it's Lord or Lords there. Uh, But the the idea is this, uh, the, the language itself it says that there are some people who are resent, resent, uh, resentful excuse me, of the new leadership. It's not peaches and cream all the way through. There are some people who, I'm not so sure about this. This seems like a pretty drastic pivot from what we were doing. In fact, one commentator says this, the viewpoint of Ezra and Nehemiah is such that these tensions are often glossed over or presented in a rather different light. A verse such as the, the present one, the one I just read, is thus a valuable reminder that sharp differences of opinion within the wider Jewish community were never far beneath the surface. So you know you had people who are going, I'm not so sure about this. I think this Nehemiah guy, maybe he's out of his mind. That's not the primary voice of the book. But we have details like this that let us know, okay, not everyone is exactly all in. Moving on through the building project, we get to a place like verse 8 where we can observe that there is a remarkable diversity of folks pitching in on this project. And the project is a huge scale. Look at verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. So you might think if you're going to build a wall, we're going to get all the people who work construction and really know what they're doing to kind of do this to build this wall. Okay, well... Um, not exactly the case here. Everyone's pitching in. Goldsmiths and perfumers are helping build the wall, and they were doing it under supervision, so they weren't just you know freelance freelancing it out of total ignorance. Uh, but everyone was pitching in. The diversity is is remarkable as you go through this list, and there's nothing more shocking than verse twelve. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters, his daughters. This is such a difficult word that it's caused some commentators to think, well, there is some scribal error or something. Um, but it's, 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 it can't be explained by a scribal error. Um, that goes against even the best principles of textual criticism. The reason it's recorded is because it stood out. It was recorded that way. It wasn't some scribe forgot how to write sons and wrote daughters instead. Remarkable. Now, being a woman in ancient Israel, hey, it was tough. Very, very tough. But it usually wasn't tough in the area of like building. It was tough in a million other ways, but not in construction projects. So it was usually left to the men. But Nehemiah includes this detail to show um, how inclusive and how diverse this workforce was rallying around to rebuild this wall because what it meant was significant and everyone wanted to pitch in. We're going to see more about that. 
um, in just a second. You move on down, Mil- Malchijah has the, uh, in verse 14, apparently has the misfortune of being assigned the, the, the dung gate there to repair, and hopefully he did that uh, unto the Lord. And then we get down to verse 16 and something happens. You've noticed up until this point, um, and not because I've said it, so maybe you didn't notice, but you have a reference to the sheep gate. There's a reference to the fish gate. There's a reference to the gate of Yashana. There's a reference to uh, the tower of ovens. There's a reference to the dung gate. In verse 16, you're going to notice that all of that designation for describing the wall stops. And they start saying things like, it went to near this person's house. It went near this pool. And what most commentators think is happening there is this, this represents a new section of the wall. Because of my understanding is that the, there on the eastern slope, it was quite steep. It would have been treacherous to rebuild. And because of the shape of the city, it wasn't really necessary anyways. So as they were repairing the wall, they got to a point where they're like, okay, we're going to cut over. And that seems to be confirmed with some of the archaeological finds. But just look, you can see the the difference here. Instead of they rebuilt to this gate, to this tower, to whatever, listen to the difference. Um, Verse 16 says that they repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David. We don't know where that is. As far as the artificial pool. okay, And as far as the house of the mighty men. Now, if you remember, the mighty men were David's prime-time fighting force. These were the elite Delta Force Navy SEAL UFC fighters of Israel. This Nehemiah 3.16 is the only time in the Bible the house of the mighty men is mentioned. Um, and it's not clear whether this is a military barracks or whether this is the, the, the UFC frat house there in Jerusalem. However you tease that out, there's a lot of testosterone there on that street. And so you have continuing, well, it was down as far as the house of the mighty men. Um, And then they're going to continue to say, like, well, it's going down to the door of this person's house. Verse 21, we're back at the priests again. The priests are helping build around the priest's home. Um, They repaired another section from the door of the house. That's pretty precise, right? What was the section? All right, do you know the door in this guy's house? We repaired from the door, and then we went down to the next Uh, section to the end of the house very precise in verse 21 another section from the door of the house to the end of the house of Eliashib it's like that person had a very defined role there Uh, and we continue on they continue to help out and then starting in uh, verse 28 you have the priests uh, repairing whatever is kind of outside their own house except for Meshulam apparently um, in verse uh, 30 excuse me who has a chamber in the temple. But guess what? He didn't get out of work. I don't know exactly how it worked, but he looked out his window or something, and it says that he repaired the part of the wall opposite of his chamber there in the temple. So you didn't get out just because you had a temple apartment. He, he Maybe they drew like these line, imaginary lines out, and you look out the window, and that is your section of wall. And then, like I said, we started with the sheep gate. We end with the sheep gate at the end of the chapter right here. Verse 32, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmith and the merchants repaired. It seems as though we've kind of gone around uh, gone around the city here and come back to the sheep gate. Okay? That's the story of the rebuild up until now. Let me just let me just zoom out. And what could, if you were all honest, okay, and weren't trying to be very pious, you read this in your morning devotional time, probably ends up being a fairly boring chapter. So let's zoom out and just make some observations about it that are re- relevant for the larger part of the story. Um, 
the, the collective energy and the unity around what was happening and what God was doing was extremely high. There are over 40 building projects named here, 40, and they are all happening simultaneously. 40 building projects all happening simultaneously, and they're all being done with quite a bit of gusto, uh, as we're going to see. So there's a lot of collective energy, and then the diversity of the people who are on board and contributing is, is, is breathtaking. It's not just handymen. Well, in fact, it's not even just men. You have the daughters, right? It's this breathtaking unity and diversity coming together and everyone saying, hey, even if I'm not a professional X, Y, or Z, or I can put my hand to the plow because God is behind us, because there is momentum, because we have been inspired, because this is the fullness of time relative to this particular project. So momentum and the solidarity and the task was super strong. And what, what they were doing represented more than just a building project. It represented the removal of, of being a public disgrace and a shame. And if you've ever been, a, if you've ever suffered from what's called associational shame, not that you've done anything necessarily bad, but you are connected relationally somehow, uh, it could be a friendship relationship, a professional associationship. Associational shame is where you feel shame because of what you're associated with. That's what the people of Jerusalem were so eager to get off of them. That's why Nehemiah says, Let us, let's stop being humiliated here and build this wall. So this is a pushing back against shame where God is going to make his name great again. Now, that's very important because it sets the stage for chapter 4. And if chapter 4 were a movie, this is what would happen. This chapter 3 has been zooming in on the camera and it's, this person's building, and then this person's building, and then this person's building, and then this person, and all the rest of them are building, and this person's building, building, and you hear that, can you just hear in your head the, t the tinkering of the hammer, tink, 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 and the people putting things, and then dust and all the rest, and here's what happens. The camera zooms out, and it begins to get smaller, and finally you end up like this. And who is it in chapter four? It's Sambalat on his balcony. They're building. Hey? Horace and Jasper aren't happy. Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, and he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered the Jews. Forgot to hit the rebuilding begins. He jeered the Jews. And so just when rebuilding begins, what also begins? Opposition begins. Opposition begins, and he gives five rhetorical jeers right here in front of a bit of an audience. The army of Samaria, which we probably should be taken at face value. They would have had an army there that would be in service to the king of, of Persia had they needed it. And then the presence of his brothers. These probably are people who are nobles, higher class like him, influencers. He says five things. What are these feeble Jews doing? And, and just you have to hear, this is the rantings of someone who is just upset. This is like a vent session, okay? These aren't real questions. These are exclamations, okay? What are these feeble Jews doing, one? Will they restore it for themselves? Huh? Will they sacrifice? And this is the one where it's not exactly clear what he's talking about. Will they sacrifice? Is this a? Is he saying, are they going to get to the point of completion and make a Thanksgiving offering? Was this something like the consecration that happened with the priests? This is a foundation kind of offering because we're going to see that the wall isn't totally rebuilt yet, but perhaps the foundation is. What he's saying isn't exactly clear, but he's not happy about it. That, that part is very much clear. 
Uh, he, he says, will they finish up in a day? Which is a nod to how quickly they're going. They're making progress. They're making significant progress because everyone is pitching in. And he realizes this. This seemed like a very short period of time here has elapsed. And he's realizing, you've got to be kidding me. Look at this. Are they going to finish in a day? No way. Will they revive, the last, the fifth question, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? So when the city was sacked and burned, you had stones that were literally burned, blackened. And he's jeering. It's a, it's a jab here. What are they, they've got blackened stones because they got wrecked. Are they going to podgepodge that thing back together? It's a, what a joke. I can't believe this is happening. It's happening quickly. Uh, this has to, uh, this can't go on. And we're going to see, we're going to see that he tries to take steps to ensure that it doesn't. And so he's got, after these five jeers, uh, Tobiah joins in the trash talk. This is ancient Near Eastern trash talk here. In verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Boom! Super offensive statement there. He's making fun of how pathetic this. is. You're telling me there's a wall getting made by perfumers and goldsmiths? <laughs> a little fox jumps up there, that thing's going to fall down. Okay, this is a joke. And then apparently this gets to Nehemiah. This gets to Nehemiah in verse 4. And Nehemiah responds with an imprecatory prayer. And that's why I had one of our readings from the Psalms be an imprecatory prayer, which is a prayer of cursing, which is a prayer of cursing one's enemies. Listen to what Nehemiah says here. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. In other words, do to them what just happened to us. Do to them what just happened to us. Verse 5, do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. The, the folks building there. A rich tradition in the Psalms. So Nehemiah is praying in accordance with a rich tradition. And perhaps some of you are wondering, well, should Christians pray those prayers now? Uh, that's just not part of this, of this narrative. That's not me ducking something. That's just saying uh, that's not part of the narrative. What about loving my neighbor and, and praying for their... Nehemiah stands in line of the Psalter and he is praying um, an imprecatory prayer because of the, because of the jeering of Sanballat and Tobiah. So after his imprecatory prayer, what happens? Verse 6, it's very matter of fact. Verse 6, so we built the wall. That's what happened. That's what happened. We built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. And that the, the idea, the Hebrew is ambiguous there, but it seems to mean that the not the wall was halfway around done, but as it's translated here, that it's halfway up. It's not all the way done, but it's significantly enough that it's halfway done at least. For the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. There was momentum. There was momentum established. And this is, a, this is just a neutral principle when you have a group of people and, and you have just a leadership principle in general. Uh, whenever you have momentum, things become easy. People want to be a part. There's energy. People are participating. People want to be there. When you don't have momentum, everything's hard. 
okay? People don't show up because it's raining or they're tired. Any excuse will do. But when you have momentum, everyone wants to be a part. And that's exactly what Nehemiah had. That's what the people had. They had momentum. And that's why they were able to knock it out so fast. They were of, uh, had a mind to work together. But as the building intensifies, you have the opposition intensifying. You have the opposition intensifying. When Sanballat and Tobiah, which by the way, now that starts off regular. We're used to hearing these guys' names by now, right? Starts off the same, but it's, it, it gets expanded. You notice that? And the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very, very angry. They want to thwart this building project. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now, here's this slide that I made. took a long time. Okay? Be there. Yes. Okay. I want to show you the lay of the land there because this description uh, might escape you if you don't know kind of the lay of the land there. And so you have the Ashdodites there on the west, and then Edom was in league with the Arabs to the south. We already heard of Geshem the Arab back in verse uh, chapter 2. Then you have the Ammonites to the east, and you have Samaria to the north. And so the upshot is when these folks get together and plan to attack you, you are going to be surrounded and attacked from all sides. At least it would seem, and that's exactly what gets confirmed in just a second. This is what they are gearing up for, okay? This is what they're gearing up for. Nehemiah in verse 9 responds uh, with his default response. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Day and night. And so what is going to happen? Well, unfortunately, bad news travels fast. Bad news travels quite fast. And in verse 10, we get a little peek into the emotional climate there in Jerusalem, and it's not all, it's not very good. It's not very good. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So you get a picture of an exhausted people who's making their exhaustion clear, which is probably not helpful for the general morale there in the city. It's like if you've ever cried before, but then looked at yourself in a mirror crying, and it made you cry more, that's like what's happening here. It's like, oh, this look how horrible this is, and now that I'm now I'm aware of how horrible it is at like the second level, and it makes it even worse. Look, are you tired? Are you tired? See, we're all tired. Everyone's tired. We're all exhausted. Bad news. Verse eleven. So that's the exhausted part. But then verse eleven. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So now all of a sudden they know that there's going to be a sneak attack. They won't see us coming. We're going to hit them hard and fast. It's going to be a sneak attack. We're going to kill them. We're going to stop the building project. And so guess what? These people are freaking out. That goldsmith isn't like a great warrior. The perfumer is not a, a professional spear thrower. And, and, and you saw that map. They're surrounded. And they know this. And they know that they have that piece of paper. 
uh, uh, and, and perhaps even some imperial officers there. But man, I tell you what, Persia, who said we could go do this, and the king had a long way away. We're over here in the province beyond the river, which all of this counts as the province beyond the Euphrates River. What, what is going to happen? And then, unfortunately, to make things worse, uh, you have people who are not living inside the city, but just outside of the city, who are coming in and spreading panic. That's what every leader wants, is someone to come spread panic among their folks, and they're trying to get things done here. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, and then the Hebrew right here, no one agrees on. So let me just tell you, the ESV has a very minority translation, you must return to us. And the idea behind that translation is, you got to get out. They're not coming out for the rural places. They could care less about my little farm. If y'all want to come stay at my house, you'll be safe. Return to us. Like, come back out of the city. Uh, Every other translation says, wherever you turn, they will attack us. In other words, every other translation suggests that they're kind of getting word of this in the outlying districts, and they're coming in and saying, hey, no matter where you go, they're coming from all sides, baby. Y'all are in trouble. We just want to let you know. And it says 10 times. So it's people coming. Oh my goodness, they're coming. I have no idea which one is the right translation, if I'm honest. However, let me comfort you by saying, in reality, probably both was there. Because if they were urging people to return to them, they obviously were doing that on the information of there's about to be a sneak attack. Right? They weren't saying just return to us so you can see the bucolic views out here in the country. It was return to us because this is coming. Um, So regardless... Uh, whether they said they're all coming and then they just offered, hey, and if you want to come to my house, you can, or whether that was the primary message, I don't, I, I can't be sure the Hebrew, if the Hebrew scholars disagree, I don't know. That's the answer. But, but in reality, probably both happened. Some of those conversations happened. And if you were coming in from the outside telling people what was about to happen, it makes a lot of sense that you might say, hey, and you can come stay at my farm. So you can be spared if you want to. Okay. But they are inciting, uh, they are inciting panic. Uh, and Nehemiah has to take action here. He must take action. This is a critical, critical moment in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, regardless of how you translate that, is about to lose his workforce, either to desertion or to their morale just collapsing. This, we're done. So what do you do? You've got an exhausted people physically, emotionally, and now they're scared. And now they have their own kinsmen coming in and inciting panic. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What does Nehemiah do? Well, he starts to implement a plan of defense. What he does is he, t- he temporarily calls a timeout on the building project. Okay, timeout. He calls a pause. And what he does, verse 13, in the lower spaces behind the wall... Um, I station people by their clans with swords and their spears and their bows. So what they're doing is getting ready to fight. They are preparing. They are not going to be caught off guard. That's the first part of his plan, kind of a nuts and bolts defensive strategy. You're going to see there's two elements to the plan here, but that's the first part of the plan. Just a nuts and bolts, militaristic defensive strategy there. And then I look and arose and said to the nobles, Uh, and the officials, and to the rest of the people. And here's Nehemiah's epic speech, which we probably, sadly, don't get all of. But here's here's the second element of his plan. This is the motivational part. This is the psychological part. He says, do not be afraid of them. That's what Nehemiah says. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, calling them to remember how God has delivered them over and over again, who their God is. Do, do, do not, uh, excuse me, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And you can almost hear the, the Aragorn nest there. There might come a day, there might come a day where we turn our swords into plowshares, but it's not this day. There might be a day where each man sits under their own tree and speaks peace to one another, but it's not this day. Today is the day, it's time to man up. It's time to fight for your wives. It's time to fight for your daughters. It's time to fight for your homes. It is time to fight and God will fight for you. God will fight for you. So that that's, the, that's where we're at. Is it going to work? Will the plan work or will it be a mixed bag? Well, as it, as it turns out, it seems like it's a remarkable success. Verse 15. He says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And so apparently that what had become known to them was the element of surprise. I mean, they had known before that they were going to get opposed, but there's the kind of now the sneak attack element. They lost the element of surprise, so now they're going to be coming up on a city with people who are ready to go, who are ready to go. And that, of course, um, would, be a, would be a bloodbath. And so, notice though, Nehemiah again attributes God to the frustration. Nehemiah acted, God is the one that frustrated the plan. We all return to the wall, each to his work, although there were some new workplace best practices implemented here at the wall. And here's what they were. From that day on, verse 16, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders who stood behind, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. It's kind of the, the leaders who were giving the directions. Who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had their sword strapped at his side while he built. So the picture is a weaponized workforce. Okay? Everyone is getting back to work building the wall, but everyone's doing so packing some heat. Because guess what? We're still trying to look out for attack. We're not going to compromise our mission here and just go totally defense, because that would be they, their intimidation one. We're not going to do that, but we're also not going to be naive. We're going to, to strap on our swords, and we're going, you're going to have a sword on your right hand, and whatever you build a wall with in your other hand, and uh, you're going to do the work. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. Now, the plan gets fine-tuned at two points. He does two pieces of fine-tuning for the plan. The first was a rally point. He said, I said to the nobles, verse 19, and to the officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. So everyone was working, right? But it was a very thin line of folks, right? Very thin line of folks there around the wall in Jerusalem. He said, this is problematic. If there's attack, even if we are ready, we're spread so thin that we may not, well, we may not last very long. We may not put up a very good fight. And so he says, what we need is a rally point, and that's exactly what he does. He says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, and the trumpet man apparently was standing beside him in verse 18, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and what will happen? Then we'll fight. No, and God will fight for us. 
Again, he's always putting those things right there together. Rally there. So you listen, trumpet player is going to hit the high C. Everyone run in here. God's going to fight. God will fight for us. We will rally here. God will do the fighting. That's the second part. This is the first part of the fine-tuning, excuse me, a rally point. Having a rally point is part of the fine-tuned plan. The second is local lodging. Verse 21, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, within the walls of Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So everyone probably smelled very bad, but it was safe. Because there were two things that could happen. One, you could be walking back to your house outside the city walls at night. You could get whacked. You could get, you could get, you get killed. But at the same time, if everyone leaves for their house who had come in to help and they a sneak attack in the middle of the night, then what are you, then where are you left with? So they, what they did, Nehemiah says, is what we have to do is we have to have some shifts here. Everyone needs to stay here, but we need to have shifts so people aren't totally exhausted. And so you had people who would work, you had people who would sleep, but everyone was physically present there and everyone was ready to go. Everyone was ready to go. And this was a tense moment here. This is still a tense moment. They're not totally out of the woods, obviously. They're sleeping with their clothes on and with a sword strapped to their thigh or their right hand. And that is where that phase of the story ends, uh, it cuts off. And so what are we left with? The situation is we've res- successfully built half the wall. We have also successfully resisted a sneak attack plan, but now we're in this odd space where we have a lot of anxiety. We're in this new normal where we are building, but with our weapons in hand, what's going to happen? What, what, ha- what happens next? When do we get to put our weapons up? Is there actually going to be a fight? Well, we'll have to you have to come back next time for that. You have to come back next time for that. But um, so this is the this concludes the section. You know, last week I made a distinction between big A application of a whole book, uh, Old Testament narrative, and the kind of little A, small A application. I'm not going to rehearse that now. You can go back and listen to last Sunday, um, just to try to make responsible in non-vegetales applications from the Old Testament. Um, and so one of, those, one of the suggestions I made was that we can always ask, what does this show us about the nature of God who never changes? What does it show us about the character and nature of God? And what does it show us about sinful man who's in need of redemption and whose nature we share? So I have just one little A application today, but it is a potent one, and you see it so clearly, it just stood out as the obvious pick. And that is, it seems that God works, and this is a pattern over and over in redemptive history, through the prayers of His people wed to action. The prayers of His people wed to action. Not just... Prayer alone. Notice that Nehemiah did not pray for a wall of fire to come down and guard Jerusalem. He said, get some swords, get some spears, and get behind the wall. 
Now imagine the person I usually call overly pious Paul, who says something like, well, God is sovereign, okay? Um, and if God wants this to happen, it'll, you know, it'll, he'll protect this city, right? And so we should just stand here, and we don't need any weapons. We can just stand here and pray, and God's wall of fire will come down uh, around us. And maybe that sounds very spiritual to you, but that's just not how God tends to work. It's not that, that, not, that he, not that he can't work that way, but just like everything else, God tends to work through means. So, for example, you hear this a lot um, in, in your small groups, maybe in your conversations, please pray for my marriage. It's like, great, I, I love play, praying for people's marriages, you know. But I want to know, like, well, what are, you, what are you doing to make it better? And sometimes the answer is literally, well, we're not doing anything to make it better. We're just hoping it gets better. I mean, we're, that's the whole point of the prayer. So basically, you're praying for a miracle. It's like I'm, I'm usually I'm, I'm all I'm all for play, praying for miracles, but I want them to be the appropriate moments. What are you doing to make your marriage better? Are you wedding your prayer with action or are you just hoping you're going to continue to do the same things and it's just going to somehow get better? Um, I was talking with someone out praying for me to be a more patient person. I, man, great prayer. We all need more patience. What are you doing to cultivate patience? Well, I'm just praying about it. Understood. Continue to please pray about that. But again, are you controlling what you can control? People say, can you pray for me with how busy we are? Great. How did you get so busy? Just to, out of curiosity. Well, we said yes to this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And we got all those things on the counter. Like, oh, that one's a pretty easy one to reverse engineer there. You know? Uh, you know, what are you doing to be less busy? I mean, what you're saying is you put these things on the calendar. How can you be less busy unless you take some things off the calendar? And some of those things are going to be good things. The myth is that people have all their calendar filled with all these things that are total waste of time. Generally, that's there's some cases that's the case. But many cases, people who are really busy are doing a lot of really good things. And you've got to say bye. You've got to say goodbye to good things sometimes to get to more important things doesn't mean that just because you stopped doing something, it was a bad thing. Sometimes you have to stop doing good things. Pray for my walk with the Lord. I love praying for people's walk with the Lord. What is someone to do? What is someone doing to walk with the Lord, though? That's what I want to know. How can I pray for what? Give me that next step, because uh, we see the picture of prayer being wed to action. And in one sense, prayer is hard in one sense, the discipline of prayer in general. Making a prayer request is not so hard. Doing things to bring that about is hard. And that's why people, and sometimes it's difficult to know even what to do. But that's how God tends to work with his people. We see that here in Nehemiah, and we see it as a pattern in the entire, I would say the entire scripture, where God uses means to bring about his ends. And so that's my question for you. My challenge for you, are you controlling everything you can control? I would say, um, and maybe someone could get me with like an exception here that I'm thinking about, but I would say the only time you should pray for something and not take steps to make that happen is when you are literally praying for a miracle. If you're praying for a miracle, there's not a next step. You're waiting on the Lord. Besides that, in most cases, okay, with the exception of some funny case that someone could come up with to stump me, you, you pray... When you put your hand to the plow relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, 
Whatever the case is, you put your hand to the plow and then you trust God to work and you trust God to show up. That's the pattern that we see. Remember, Nehemiah, everyone come here in the middle and then we'll fight. No, and then God will fight. God gets all the credit. We do the work. God gets the credit because he's the one who makes it work. Okay? Unless the Lord builds the house, the folks who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord is watching the city, it doesn't matter what kind of strategy you got or how many spears you have or how many swords. But, but it's a both and, isn't it? It's a both and. And so does every obstacle and challenge and next step involve you waiting for God to part the Red Sea? Just waiting for the sea to part. Just waiting. Notice that even Moses, I mean, he didn't, when the Red Sea parted, he wasn't like, well, we, God's still sovereign. We just stand here. We have a better view of the, what's, what's happening here anyways. We could just stand here and God will still make his name great. No. When the Red Sea opens, he says, all right, it's time to move. It's time to head out. This is how our prayers, this is how the Lord is going to fight for us by opening this path and we are going to walk through it. So here's what I want you to hear. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Okay? Trusting God isn't opposed to taking action. It's opposed to taking over. All on me. I got this. It's not a, trusting God is not opposed to taking action. It's opposed to taking over. And so in every sphere of our life, the encouragement here, the challenge, the question we can ask ourselves and be encouraged with is, are we putting our hand to the plow with grace-driven, gospel-fueled, holiness-seeking effort to the glory of God? Grace-driven, gospel-fueled, holiness-seeking effort to the glory of God in prayer and then trusting God to make His name great and show up because He has promised to do so and He will keep that promise. Let's pray. God, we are reminded of how insignificant we are compared to you. We are reminded how desperately you need us to work and that no plan or strategy or set of tactics is going to be successful apart from you. And yet, and yet we are called to be faithful and, and be good stewards and to take action and to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love according to your word. Lord, I pray that perhaps someone sitting here saying, I know that this element of my life needs to change. I even know some good ideas that could perhaps help, but they just have not done them. Lord, I pray that this would be a soft quickening that you would use this example of Nehemiah as he reflects how you work and your unchanging nature with your people as a motivation. That we would all ask ourselves, where do we tend to make those kinds of excuses? Rely on the sovereignty of God in some kind of irresponsible way. And Lord, help us put our hand to the plow because it is hard. And this life is hard. And there is a lot of exhaustion. And there is a lot of discouragement. And so would you meet us there? Would you meet us there in that place and gently help us grow in the grace of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen.